O leaders of the apostles and teachers of the world, intercede with the Master of all, that he may grant peace unto the world and to our souls his great mercy. Welcome everyone to our uh, third Bible study uh, on 1 Corinthians. It's so nice to see everybody this morning. Um, I'd like to welcome especially my parents, Michael and Margaret, who are here visiting from California. Uh, they just got in last night. And of course, we had to stop at Cracker Barrel on the way. <laughs> so <laughs> they, like they just, oh, okay. just got in. It's nice to have them in person. These, these are some of the most faithful parishioners in the last few months, if you don't know watching live streams, watching audio recordings, emailing our office manager, etc., sending gifts to the church. So it's not nice to have them in person uh, with us this morning from California. And of course, they're in town because, um, among other things, this weekend is our 50th anniversary as a community in Boulder. So what a wonderful event that is going to be this weekend. Um, and I hope you're all able to make it this weekend. Absolutely. We'll have some special guests with us and many visitors and people for the, uh, the weekend. As you know, it starts Saturday night with, with Vespers at 4 o'clock. And then uh, the big dinner afterwards in downtown Boulder, which we've modeled after a wedding reception. So there's going to be the cocktail hour, very nice food, dancing, a few speeches. It'll be a wonderful time. And then on Sunday, we'll have liturgy with a big meal to follow and desserts from all the different ethnicities in the parish. So we're looking forward to it. And of course, Bishop Constantine will be with us for the whole time. I talked to him yesterday. He's very excited to be with us. This is a, this is a, I like, he likes visiting our parish here. For one thing, he doesn't have to travel far. He's often uh, traveling every weekend to different places in the big country that he's, uh, uh, the part of the country that he's overseeing. So here he can just drive up and have a nice time. So he's looking forward to it. We'll see Father Jordan and Father Lou and many others too. So we're looking forward to that. And we're very thankful for 50 years uh, in Boulder as a community. Um, I've only been part of it for less than a year, but some people here have been part of it for 50 years. And this is an incredible thing to think about. 50 years, the church has grown little by little um, from the course of several different buildings and community has grown and ministered to thousands of people, uh, if not tens of thousands in this area over 50 years. So we have a lot to be thankful for and to look forward to in the next 50 years. Um, so as we get started with looking at 1 Corinthians, I wanted to make a couple notes to bring us up to where we are. Last time we went through verse 9, um, but I'd like to just take a, a brief look at, at what we covered so far um, and see a couple things here. Um, we, St. Paul begins his epistle greeting everyone in the church of Corinth. 
and reminding them that they're not on an island. They're not by themselves. They're connected with the whole church. They're one of, of many different churches. And he has preached at that church and established it. And others have come and, and helped to establish it um, as well. And in a beautiful first part of introduction and blessing, he praises them and he thanks God for them. And he praises them for all these wonderful things that, uh, they, that they have, for the knowledge that they're enriched with knowledge, that they have all these gifts. And we remember that the Corinthian church, even though Paul is praising it uh, very highly and with a lot of love, the Corinthian church is a church with a lot of problems, as we'll see. But he starts off and the whole tone of his letter, and he will get into chastising them at a certain point, but the way that he speaks to them is not as unto a troubled person or a troubled place. He doesn't talk to them like a troubled. We're different in our lives. When somebody gives us trouble, we treat them as a troubled person. <laughs> or when somebody does something to offend us, we maybe don't talk to them anymore or something like this, right? St. Paul, though, speaks to the people in the way that God sees them, not in the way that they maybe should be evaluated by Paul as a troublesome church. He sees them as God sees them, which is with constant and unending love and patience. And so he, he talks to them and he says, I thank God for you because God has given you all this, uh, all these gifts, all this potential to be like God even. And he thanks God for that. And of course, the question is, are they living up to that? Is that how they're acting? No. He's not talking to them as they're acting. He's talking to them as who they are, who they are called to be. And he's calling them up to a higher level. And that's a beautiful thing for all of us to think about as we interact with other people in life is we should talk and interact and think about other people as God thinks of other people, which is all the same, all children of God all worthy of love and forgiveness and mercy and everything good. Uh, and that's, that's a challenge right there in the way that St. Paul sets an example for us of how to look at other people, even when they're not living up to how they're called. Because Paul has been called, and they have been called, the people have been called. But the calling is something that they're working towards. And that's what we're all working towards as well, this high calling um, of Christ. And uh, so this is what that first part is about, is praising them for who they are and um, for all the things that God has given them. To say that you have, he's basically telling them, you have everything. You have all the access to the gifts. You have all access to the knowledge. You have all access to the grace of God. Everything is open to you. Everything is yours in Christ. So come up to that level. <laughs> Don't go looking for other uh, things. Because these people, as we mentioned last time, keep going back to the idols' temples. For us, we keep going back to our bad habits or, you know, all the things that uh, keep us uh, distracted 
from the great gifts that God has laid out for us. Yeah, so, so he says these things in the first part. And then he says uh, at the end, he says, you've been given all these things. Um, and then because you are, that way you can eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is verse seven there. And because you have all of these things, you have access to all of the grace of God. You have access to all the teachings of Christ as laid out in all the Gospels, the good news of the resurrection, the grace of the Holy Spirit, the sacrament of baptism. All these things are yours. So you can wait eagerly with expectation and hope and anticipation for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ is, and he'll call it, it's, it's basically what we would call the second coming of Christ, which he'll say later, he has another term for it, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ or the day of our Lord Jesus Christ are in a way synonymous for that event of the second coming of Christ. The day of Yahweh is what's used in the Old Testament it's the day when God will come and restore order and justice and a new creation, right? The second coming of Christ. But St. Paul also calls it the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is an interesting um, thing to think about because revelation is different than how we look at the second coming of Christ. The second coming, the coming, the return of Christ, we call it, right? The return of Christ makes it sound like Christ is not with us, that he's going to come back. And yet every liturgy, we say Christ is in our midst. And in the Gospels, the Lord, before he ascends to heaven, says, I am always with you. So a very accurate way to describe the last judgment or the second coming of Christ that Paul uses here that he, he likes to describe it as is the revelation because the revelation means that you're able to see something that has always been there. The appearing something that's always been there. So in a way you can say this is the second coming of Christ. Christ will be revealed in all of his glory at the second coming of Christ. And for all of us, we are excited for that. We eagerly await that because of all this great gifts and potential, all the rich uh, uh, gifts that God has given us in Christ our Lord. But also when you talk about revelation, obviously this is the second coming when the Lord comes again and we see him. But this revelation of God is something that the church looks at and says, this is accessible to us all of the time. Christ is always with us, right? Christ is always with us. So we should always, in every day of our life, be looking for his revelation. Be looking to see him. Be looking to uh, have him present with us in our lives. So we should always be eagerly waiting and expecting him to be with us even now, today, and tomorrow, and the next day, and finally on the day when he calls us home or when he returns again in glory. This is, this is our hope. 
this is our goal and vision, is to see Christ, that he reveals himself to us. Um, So these are some of the things that uh, St. Paul is talking about um, in the first part, reminding them that their goal is to use these gifts and use this teaching of the resurrection of Christ and the cross of Christ to use these teachings well in our lives, eagerly expecting the Lord to come again and to say, well done, good and faithful uh, servant. So this is the first part where he's outlining all these things. Um, Does anyone have any comments about that Um, up to verse 9 as we... Uh, get started. Any thoughts or comments about what St. Paul has written there? Thank you for the water. This is verse 9 of the mm-hmm. of first chapter. Of first Corinthians chapter 1. Okay, so this is all of the, the good news and all of the, all the good stuff that he's going to start with. Now, the next part, he's going to start uh, addressing some of the issues that he sees in a very loving and gentle way, but also very firm and clear to talk about what he's seeing as problems in the church in the first Corinthians. And he begins, verse 10, does, does anyone want to read verse 10 for us there? Okay. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Beautiful. That first part, those first few words should really stick out to us of verse 10 there. He says, I plead with you, brethren. I plead with you. You can imagine Paul on bended knees pleading with them. Pleading with them. This is is a, a strong word that he's using. His love and care for them. He's willing to do anything for them to achieve their high calling in Christ, to become closer to Christ. And he pleads with them, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So what, what he's really doing there, that's kind of his thesis statement of this part. That's his, his thesis of what he wants them to do. And he's going to get into some of the arguments and things like that. But that's his thesis statement. And it's a, big, it's a big statement to say that you all speak the same thing. He wants the church in Corinth to everyone speaks the same thing. There, there's no divisions that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. It's a big, a big calling uh, to say that you all be perfectly joined together. Does anyone have any thoughts or want to comment on... That's a, that's a big that's verse right there. It's kind of hard to get a big group of people to agree. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's, that's so sure. true. That's so true. Even, this... even just among friends. Yeah. Yeah. But to, to speak to a huge crowd of people. Yes. And to say, 
to say, to speak the same mind to all those people. Yeah, when do you find a crowd these days yes. that all speaks the same mind? At the CU football game, all the fans <laughs> are of the same mind <laughs> around the football game, right? So imagine if that's how it was in the church. Yeah, yeah, right? It's not in politics, that's for sure. But imagine that's how it should be in the church as well. Like if, if we were as excited about God's resurrection and victory over uh, death and the devil as we were excited about CU's defeat of CSU. Uh, I mean, we love CSU because they're neighboring teams too. No offense. I mean, I live in Loveland, so I have to be careful. Uh, here. Uh, but if we were that excited about Christ every single Sunday when we remember the resurrection, that, then we would be of one mind if we were actually that excited coming to church to praise and glorify and rejoice in the resurrection of Christ. And that's because that's the victory message, right? Christ has defeated sin, death, and the devil. That's how we're of the same mind. That's, that, that would be, that would, what it would, that's what it would look like, right? As if we were. We're not there even today. What's that? We're not there even today. No, we're not. We're still, we're still uh, working on that. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive us, St. Paul. We're still trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, and I, um, I've been going to Bible studies for a long time, but it seems like sometimes you read the same verse over and over again and you see something different. Mm. And it's like, you know, I didn't see that. So, I mean, how can we all be, be of the same mind if we're, our perception of what they're saying is... yeah keeps changing or that's growing. a good point that's a good point yeah, a good yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. how do we find that that unity of of mind obviously some people will be a little bit different or, or have different ideas there may be in the church cu fans and csu fans there may be people that are republicans there may be people that are democrats right all these divisions that exist in the world but the idea is what St. Paul is going towards is that when Christ is our identity, when he is our identity, not, not politics, not anything else that may divide us, when he is our identity, when he is the first place in our minds and in our very understanding of ourselves, then we'll be growing together uh, in there. Now, one of the words that's used here when he says, there be no divisions among you. Schisma is the word in Greek. Schisma, which is where we get the word schism from. Which is schisma or schism is the division word that he's saying here. He's, he's pleading with them that there be no divisions. Because as you're going to see, there are divisions. And he's going to basically say these divisions in the church are because you haven't fully grasped the message. You haven't fully uh, begun to live like Christ is the one that is the center of your life. You're still distracted by all these divisions, these schisma, as it says. So schisma or schism literally means a tearing like a, a tearing of a garment or something like that. There's a, a story, maybe you know, in the church around the time of the first ecumenical council in 325, 
when one of the heretics, the main heretic of the time, Arius, who was teaching that Jesus is not fully God, uh, and he was teaching this, and the first council was defending the truth, as Christ said in the scriptures, that he is God, that Jesus Christ is God. And there's a, there's a story in there, because Arius was teaching something different, and there were many followers of Arius, and they were followers of the other parties, right? There was a schism in the church. There was a tearing in the church. And there's a story of, I think it was one of the patriarchs, one of the bishops at the council, that um, saw in a vision Arius, and he saw Christ there, really, he saw Christ, and Christ's garments were torn apart. And the bishop says to Christ, Lord, who has torn your garments? Who has torn your garments? And the Lord responds, Arius. Arius has torn my garments. He's, he's torn the body of Christ by creating a schism, a division in the church. Um, so every, every schism and every division in the church, St. Paul will, will say and is saying to them, is pretty much the worst thing that can be happening in a church. To have divisions means that the, that, that the body of Christ in that location is not healthy because it's being divided. And Christ is one. Christ is united. So the Christians should be united as well. When there's divisions, when there's schisms, this is a terrible thing. You could say it's, it's the worst sin, right, of a, of a church uh, to have. And for people in the church that create schisms, you know, and when it comes to guiding a church, the, the bishops and the priests of the church exercise a lot of love and care for people. But the, the one thing that can't be tolerated is outright heresy and schism, which are connected. When, when things that are taught that are not true and when people are divisive in the church. This is something that affects the whole body and has to be dealt with sometimes um, harshly. Uh, even our, I saw, heard a story of our bishop and, you know, if, if there is, you know, once one clergyman that was, you know, getting upset at another clergyman in a, in a way that was insulting it publicly. And so the bishop called that person and said, you need to apologize. Right. Usually we're loving and patient. But when things affect the whole community, that's when things need to be straightened out, because this is completely against uh, what it means to be a church, what it means to be in the body of Christ. Um, so that's what Paul is doing here and saying you have to be um, of one mind. You're many parts, many parts of the body, and there will be some differences naturally like that. But to be all of one mind and to have to, to be of one mind means to have the mind of Christ in us, to have him be our unity uh, in our mind. Um, and also another interesting thing in the verse here at the end, when he says you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, that same mind is the mind of Christ. St. Paul talks about uh, later that to crucify your own mind, to die to your own will and your own mind and to live uh, to Christ. He said, let this mind be in you that was in Christ 
who is a servant uh, to all later. So to be of one mind means that our own mind, our own thoughts are in check. They're not running rampant. Our own, our own uh, thoughts that we have about things, they should be in check. That's a, that's a big thing that uh, stands against much of our experience. Usually we let our minds run wild. We're thinking about this or that. But later in the epistle, St. Paul says to take every thought captive in Christ. That's, that's what it looks like to have the mind of Christ, to say, I'm having this thought. Let me submit and let me check it against Christ and the cross. That means having the same mind. Mary, did you have a question? I do, but w- yeah. with, with the schism, though, there were churches, other churches developed, other churches that didn't believe in the true God, and our Orthodox mm-hmm. church that didn't mm-hmm. believe in the true mm-hmm. God, mm-hmm. even back then, yeah. the schism. Well, so mm-hmm. that's why there's so many it, ch- different churches. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little good part to that, mm-hmm. and yet, if they go mm-hmm. to the true God, mm-hmm. which, like, I don't know, a lot of the religions might think right off of the Mormons or the <coughs> Seventh Day Adventists. Mm-hmm. Or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know what God they believed in, mm-hmm. but the schism brought mm-hmm. all of these different churches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if, yeah. if, if it's the true God, if we have the true God, which the Orthodox Church, in my mind, has always had. Yeah. yeah. Well, isn't that what orthodoxy stands, stands for? Mm. I mean, that the word mm. is yeah. yeah. the way I understand it. Mm. So what was your question, Mary, about, or was it just you were thinking about the, the good that can come out of different churches? Good can come out of bad sometimes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right now, we still have schisms. I mean, the oh, yeah. Catholic churches oh, yeah. this and the other thing. Even within the Catholic yeah. organization. Even within the Orthodox Church, there's yes. certain yeah. schisms going there on is. right now. But we're right. trying. Mm-hmm. Right. Even with the war in Ukraine, Russia. With Russia. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's all these complicated things that happen. Yeah. Yeah. So they still happen to this day, but I think to look at, sometimes God can let good things come out of it as well. Do you think that, I mean, obviously we're always striving for that, but the reality of like living in a fallen, fallen world, is there some um, uh, coming to terms with the way things are and still wanting to like work forward to things? Because, you know, it is a reality, I guess, that mm-hmm. you know, yeah. imperfect. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if we, if we think somehow, I mean... It's, there's, a, there's a tension there because we should always be striving for perfect unity, for no schisms, for all that, right? We should always be striving. But that striving is a personal one. Like, if we think we can fix the church ourselves or that we can somehow heal the schisms by our own efforts, we're probably deluded and we may end up causing another schism with our own church that's the true, genuine, very, very authentic Orthodox church <laughs> or something like that, right? So the, to heal the schisms and to work towards unity, the way to do it is by each person, by you, by me, becoming like Christ. That's the way, to, that's the way of the saints, right? When they're called, sometimes they speak and they come out, but usually they live a sanctified life. And by living a life 
uh, in love with God and in perfect unity with God, that's how the church is healed and people around them can be healed. Uh, but yeah, there's a tension because we should, we should always want perfect unity and yet at the same time, I don't think there's ever been a time in church history when you could say, oh, that church is all good. They're great. Free pass to heaven for them. They're great, right? <laughs> this, is, this kind of denies the fact that we're in a fallen, in a fallen world. So it, it makes us look forward to heaven, right? To Christ coming. We're always, if we thought we could perfect it here, our sights would be set below the heavens. Our sights would be set here on earth, perfecting things here. But no, we're striving for heaven. That's where our unity will be. That's where the perfect unity, perfect healing of every schism will be in, in heaven. So should we work to fix the church? Yes, we should work our whole lives to fix the church. How do we do that? By fixing ourselves, by transforming ourselves. This reminds me of the saint we just uh, honored, the, the cook, Saint Euphrosyne. Yeah. You know, he was just a humble man. And, he, and, and then some in the monastery were against him because he was so humble. Yeah. But he's the one that became the saint. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. So we have to have a little humility here, too. So true. It's so true. And when I read about that saint, I just I thought, hey, you know, yeah. I have him hanging in my kitchen because I'm uh-huh. saint. <laughs> Yeah, he's the one that went to paradise, right? Yes. And, mm-hmm. and got some apples. And as soon as he was found yes. out I that they. I didn't know that about the apple. Uh huh. As soon as they found out that it was apples from heaven, he was so embarrassed. I think he went to another monastery. He, he did. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of the way. Like, you could say, oh, that, that's a saint. Great, he did it. To heaven he goes. We should praise him now. What does he do, though? He runs away. Because <laughs> he does it. He flees the glory. Yeah. You know, the yeah. one who waters and the one who plants, or they're not in Mm-hmm. They're the servants, and we mm-hmm. have, we're all the servants of God. That's right. Sweet, What's that? The sweet apples. That's right. That's right. The most humble, the most humble servant is sometimes the most important. So true. Yeah. Now, another word. Yeah, another word here to to note as well that I found interesting in, in studying this. He says, "You be perfected together in the same mind. That's the mind of Christ, and in the same uh, judgment." The word judgment here in Greek is not the same that's used for like the last judgment, which is krisis. That's the word for the last judgment. By the way, that's an interesting word there because the word for judgment, like the, 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 the judgment, the, the, you know, here comes the judgment. We have the Sunday of the last judgment. The word in Greek is krisis, which is where we get our word crisis. Crisis. So in a way, you could say any crisis that you face in life is a judgment because it reveals who you are. It reveals things about yourself. You kind of stand before the judgment of God when you have a crisis. I lost my keys. It's a crisis. How am I going to react? It tells me a lot about myself, how I react in that crisis. So it is a judgment in a way. Not that you're being condemned. But you're being revealed, right? Something is being revealed. Uh, but this word is, is different in Greek. It's another word that's being translated as judgment. Um, 
And basically, it's more of, um, it's derived from the word of um, something that comes from experience. In other words, when you have an opinion about something in the world, right? It's because of your experience. So you, you're, you're judging or analyzing, maybe is a better way to say it, something based on your experience, right? Let's, let's, let's use church music as an example. You love this hymn, you don't love this hymn, right? Like you hate this hymn or this, this hymn you don't like, this hymn you like. A lot of that is based on your experience from your past, associations you have like that. That's the kind of judgment that's happening here. It's judgment based on, yeah, your experience of how you view the world. So when you look at it from that understanding, that the judgment here is more of an experience of, of even a knowledge of something, you can take it as when he says you be, you be perfected together in the same mind of Christ and in the same judgment. What is our common experience then in the church? Our common experience is what? Baptism and the Eucharist. These are the ways that we're united, is what he's saying here. The mind of Christ and in the same judgment, the same outlook on life based on our experience of the sacraments, our experience of Christ. We experience him personally in the sacraments, in our baptism, every time we come for confession and stand before him in repentance, every time we come for communion to receive his body and blood. These are the experiences that unite us as a community in the body of Christ. This is how unity is achieved by receiving the sacraments, by participating in the sacraments. So you could take that, that saying that he has there in that way as a sacramental, uh, with a sacramental look there. That's how unity is, is achieved. The same mind and the same judgment, that we be perfectly joined together, united, and not torn apart. So this is what he wants for us. And then he goes on to say, uh, it's been declared to me concerning, to you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household. So there you go. Now you know who has ratted on them. <laughs> that Chloe's household went to Paul and, and told him about the trouble that's going on. And he's been told that there's contentions among them because some are saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. <laughs> um, uh, so all these different divisions are happening among them. There's different camps that are going on. There's the Paul camp. There's the Apollos camp. There's the Cephas camp. And then there's those that are like, oh, I don't know about all of you. I'm of Christ. I'm not one of those that are in division. I'm of Christ. Yeah, those are kind of... Uh, you know they're better than everyone They're better than everyone else. Yeah, they're, they're division. They're in the Christ part of the division. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but all of them are, are divided of, of uh, different people. We hear in, in Acts of the Apostles as a note that this Apollos person, you can read in Acts chapter 18 about a lot of these things uh, that are happening in, in Corinth. Apollos is a preacher that came to Corinth after uh, Paul left and began to preach. And Paul's friends Aquila and Priscilla were there and they heard the preaching 
And they realized that Apollos, who was a very nice Jewish uh, preacher from Alexandria, he was preaching John's baptism. In other words, he hadn't heard about Christ. Uh, He was one that was preaching about the baptism of John, which Paul runs into in chapter 19 of Acts as well and uh, explains more fully. And that's what happens with Apollos. Uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside, explain to him how John was leading to Christ. Christ has come and Apollos gets it and continues preaching in the correct way. So it's an interesting, interesting note about Apollos. He's a good guy. He's a friend of Paul's. Um, but some people latch on to him for whatever reason rather than on to Paul. Another one, Cephas, you know, Cephas is Simon Peter. That's the name for Simon Peter is Cephas. Uh, so that's, that's Simon Peter is who they're talking about there. Um, so all these different people are, are latching on to different uh, preachers that are circulating around uh, these areas. Um, and, then, and then Paul says this beautiful verse here in verse 13. Does someone want to read this? You, get, you, you can get some of Paul's personality. <laughs> In character here in verse 13. Zoe, do you want to read verse 13? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you (laughs) baptized in the name of Paul? Right. So he's he's a kind of funny, a funny character, Paul, right? Was was Paul crucified? He doesn't even say, was I crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And obviously the answer to all of these is no, no, no. It gets louder and louder and louder, right? Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. <laughs> like we get the point. Like, uh, so, so all of these, these things uh, are, are humorous in a way. But, but show us um, that uh, the, the, the ridiculousness of how far these people have come. That they're worshiping a cult of personality rather than Christ. They're worshiping Paul or they're worshiping whoever it is instead of Christ, right? Uh, which is which is happens in in the world today, especially if you happen and and don't if you're not if you are on social media or orthodox mm. blogging and news and all this. There's people that like this priest and there's people that like this priest or that like this jurisdiction or that jurisdiction, or that bishop, and think that bishop is, right, this is all ridiculous at the end of the day, right? Is, is, are, are some messages good? You know, is it good to find someone that you like to hear? Yeah, sure. But don't put them above Christ. Christ is the one that is our unity. These are divisions. These things are divisions. Not that these preachers are causing divisions or trying to even attract people for themselves. They're not even trying to attract followers. Often this happens, even in the church. You know, good priests sometimes, they're not even trying to attract followers to themselves, but because of the weakness of us people, we get attached to one person. And okay, all the other priests must be a problem. This is the one true priest, right? It's ridiculous. Was that priest crucified for you? No, (laughs) right? Were you baptized in his name? No. Did he baptize you? Maybe. And then St. Paul goes on and he says, he says, I'm so thankful. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Or, uh, yeah. uh, but I, I thank God. I'm so thankful that I baptize none of you. He says, I'm so glad that I baptize none of you. Because he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
It's like, no. So I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. And then, in a way, you can hear the scribe Sosthenes saying, um, excuse me, Paul, you actually did baptize. <laughs> Correction there. Uh-huh. So he says, I thank God I baptized none of you. Oh, yeah, except Crispus and Gaius. <laughs> Lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. And then again, um, excuse me, Paul. Yes, oh, yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. I don't know who else I baptized. <laughs> That's literally what he says. I do not know whether I baptized any other. That's all I can remember. <laughs> so it's not important to him who he baptized and who he preached. And he's telling them the same thing. You can see some people may have gotten offended at this message and saying, wait a second, you forgot me. I was baptized and I'm your most faithful follower. I've been bashing Apollos all day on social media. Like, shouldn't you remember me? <laughs> So he doesn't care. He doesn't care. It's not about him. He, Paul is there as one that is the least, the one, uh, as he'll, he'll talk more about himself in some really interesting ways. He sets, he'll set himself up as, as the best of the apostles because he is the worst in this backwards kind of way. You should follow me because I am the worst apostle, because I am crucified with Christ. I am the foolish one. I am the weak one. So you should follow me because Christ is also seemingly foolish and weak. So he, he loves to deprecate himself in a way that glorifies uh, God and points to God. That's what he's doing uh, here. That, uh, that it doesn't matter who I baptized. This is Christ that you were baptized into. Christ is your unity. So it's uh, some, some fun uh, little... Pauline <laughs> humor and character uh, you can see there. Um, let's see. So moving right along. Any, any thoughts or questions with any of those things? Yeah, observations? Well, Paul keeps calling himself an apostle, but from what I understand, Back in the ancient church, he was not considered an apostle because he wasn't there mm. to see Christ's resurrection, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had to be a witness yeah. to the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. 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 He he calls himself an apostle. He identifies himself as an apostle. But he'll say later that he's the least of the apostles. Mm-hmm. And in there, he doesn't even... he Obviously, because he wasn't there with Jesus at all these events... But for him, that's not the reason that he's not an apostle. He says, I'm not an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of Christ. That stuck with him for mm-hmm. his whole life. Yeah. That not only was he not there, but he persecuted the church of Christ. But as we know, even though he wasn't there physically with Christ, we label him, we number him with the 12 apostles. Not only because of, as I mentioned, that three years where and throughout his life, where he personally encounters Christ and even goes to the, the heaven, third heaven, seventh heaven. We'll get to that uh, soon enough. But he has this experience of Christ. He's delivered words of the Lord. He's given, apostle means someone who is sent, right? God gives him, Christ reveals himself to Paul, gives him strength and sends him out. But he still calls himself the least the least of the apostles there. Um, so, so this is some, some beautiful things uh, um, happening here as Paul points to Christ and not to uh, himself in his humility, very 
humble in all of this. Um, So finally, this part ends when he's talking about addressing the beginning of these divisions, talking about the divisions, identifying, pointing, uh, calling them out on all these divisions that are happening. Um, And at the end of it, he says, Christ did not send me. Again, send me is that apostle. He's been sent. Um, The prophets in the Old Testament, they have the same Hebrew root for ones that are sent out uh, with a message, dispatch with, with the message of God. He did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he sees baptism as something that can be done by people that are presbyters or people that are appointed to function in the church as uh, ones that perform the sacraments, right? For him, it's not about even staying at one church and growing it uh, and, and staying at one place. He, the apostles will later, will see appoint uh, bishops that will then stay at a church and govern the church, perform the sacraments, continue the teaching. But Paul is one who is traveling from place to place, preaching uh, the gospel. So he didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And now, and, and you'll see, this, this is what makes the epistles tricky often is that the Gospels are very narrative form. It just kind of, this happened, and this happened, this happened. St. Paul will do these quick about faces. And if you're, not, if you're not reading carefully, you'll be reading something and following, and then you're reading something else and say, wait, how did this come? How did this come about? Where did he go? And this is one of those here, where he's talking about him baptizing. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. He does a quick turn. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. You're like, wait, where does that, where did that come from, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost like a non sequitur. He turns really quickly to something that he wants to tell them, which is basically what he's going to tell them. Um, and as it says in the Orthodox Study Bible here in the title, that um, baptism is the sacrament of unity. They've all been baptized. This is what's uniting them. Not that they're of... They're not of Paul or Apollos. They've all been baptized into Christ. That's their, their moment of unity, that knowledge, that experience, common experience of unity. And the message of unity then is the cross. So he's going to say the way to unity is through the cross of Christ. And the next part of the epistle, uh, through the end of this chapter, he's going to be speaking about the cross and about how they can achieve unity through the cross. Which is an interesting way to go, right? Unity in Christ. Christ and the cross, that's, that's, that's his message. Christ, the cross, and the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection are integral to everything happening here. So he points to the cross, and in particular, he says, not with, he's preaching not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. In other words, where he's going to be going is that the cross of Christ is, as we said, that place of unity. Why? Because the cross of Christ is for every Christian, right? The cross of Christ is something that doesn't make sense to anyone else. The cross of Christ is the hidden knowledge, the hidden wisdom of the message, 
And this is the hidden and secret wisdom he's about to unpack that unites them. Because they used to go to these mystery cults in the Roman times, where they would go and undergo a ceremony and be initiated into some mystery, Gnosticism kind of, you could say, some mystery about the universe, right? What he's saying is that, no, your unity comes not through those things, but through being baptized and then being preached and learning about the cross of Christ, which is a mystery. And the mystery of the cross at the heart, where they can find the unity, is that all of the wisdom that they think that they have, because they're very proud of their wisdom, all of the strength that they think they have, because they're very proud of their wisdom and their strength and their gifts, that he's basically going to tell them all of that wisdom and that pride and everything that you have in yourselves is what's causing the division, right? You think you're so smart. You think your Apollo's preaching is the right way, everyone else. You think, you think this, you think that. All of those things are what's causing division. The message of the cross is the unity message because on the cross should die our wisdom and our pride because the cross turns everything upside down. Here is the God of the universe on the cross that seems to be foolish by dying, seems to be weak by dying, seems to be foolish by letting himself be captured and die, right? But this is where we're pointing that God's wisdom and God's power is what should give us pride and joy and unity. When we think of our wisdom and our pride and our accomplishments, that causes divisions. When we crucify our mind in Christ, when we crucify our will, when we crucify our ambitions and join Christ in this upside-down message that what seems to the world as foolishness is actually wisdom, what seems to the world as weakness is actually strength, this is going to be unity. Um, so this is where we'll end for, for today, which will launch us in next time to a conversation more as Paul unpacks this message of the cross. And uh, there's some very central messages to the Christian faith here, and he'll unpack them. But the very heart of it is that the unity is found in denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Christ. When each person is doing that, when each person individually, each person in this room, you could say, is doing that, is taking up their cross, denying their own thinking, turning over their thoughts to Christ, glorying not in, in themselves, but in God, right? And that's what he's saying. I thank God for you because of the <clears throat> gifts of God. Not because of something you did, because of the gifts of God. When our glory is in God, when our wisdom is God's wisdom, when we crucify our own ego and our own self, that is how we are unified together in the sacraments, in the mind of Christ, together as one body. And so that's how every church should be, including ours. When every person prioritizes their spiritual life of picking up the cross of Christ, of joining in the sacraments, and of living a Christian life, then the unity in the church will be so astounding that, as Christ said, everyone will know that you are my disciples because you will have the love for one another. So that's our, our goal for even this church, as Paul's goal was for the First Corinthian church, 
and with the prayers of St. Paul, may our Lord Jesus Christ bless us and unite us to himself. Amen. Amen.